Welcome to the Vintage Grace Sunday Podcast. We hope our series on the book of Revelation will challenge and encourage you to grow closer to God and recognize that He wins. Let this message be a reminder to you of His love for you and the plan that He has for your life. Okay, so I get it. I'm wearing a Niners jersey. I know they lost. Uh, I appreciate those of you who graciously texted me last week just to see how I was doing, how I was feeling. Um, I'm really, I'm okay. I don't care that much. So, but it was a, a real point in my life and it really happened and we really have to deal with the reality. Now, I want you to imagine with me though, what if at halftime of the game last week, I had a vision from God and during halftime, like God showed up and he showed me Jimmy Garoppolo throwing an interception to end the game, right? And you would say, well, based on past experience, that's very predictable. That would make sense. Not only would it make sense, but beyond that, like it would change the second half of the game, wouldn't it? If I knew the game was gonna end in defeat, then I wouldn't have ever yelled at the TV, which I didn't for the reference. I wouldn't have been upset, I wouldn't have been frustrated, I wouldn't have had high highs or low lows, I wouldn't have said, oh my goodness, they're blowing the largest fourth quarter lead in the history of playoffs since the last time Shanahan did it, right? Like, I wouldn't have felt any of those things because I knew what was coming. Now again, no, I didn't have a vision, but, but I do feel like there's massive implications for us in Revelation. If we know what's coming, it changes the way that we respond in the present reality. If we know what the future holds, then we don't have to have high highs or low lows. We can be faithful because in the vision that I didn't have, that I wish I had, not only were we going to lose, but we were going to win the next three Super Bowls. So it'd be like, hey, no big deal. No big deal if we have this minor setback because we know as believers there's no setback in the kingdom. There's only setups for greater kingdom movement. And so again, that's what I want us to be thinking about as we open the text today. Now, please hear me. If I had a vision of Jimmy throwing an interception, that doesn't mean that I would know every detail of the game, does it? It doesn't mean that I wouldn't have necessarily understood that ankles were a big part of our problem as a team last week. That having no rushing attack was a big problem with our team last week. That the dropped interception, not the one that we threw, the one that we didn't catch. Like all those details based on that vision, I don't think I understood it all perfectly, but it sure would have helped me in my reality. I want you to pause for a moment. What would your life be like if you knew the final outcome of the big game, literally and metaphorically? What would life be like if we just knew the final score? Then I think we could joyfully wear this jersey in spite of any ridicule or mockery that was gonna come. And I had someone come and say, I thought Jersey Sunday was next Sunday. It is, I'll wear it again. <laughs> eight is great, maybe I'll wear it on our eighth birthday party too. You know what I'm saying? Like, and I wouldn't have to worry about people saying, well, the Niners are losers. I'd be like, yeah, but you don't know the final score. You don't know what's coming next in 23 and in 24 and in 25. Like there'd be something about me and my allegiance. Well, I don't know about you, but I see way too many fair weather fans. Way too many people that they're quickly changing out their colors. As a Bay Area sports fan living in Southern California for many years, I could not stand Anaheim Angel fans. California Angel fans, they were okay. But if you didn't know who Rod Carew was, I wasn't talking to you. You cared more about thunder sticks and rally monkeys than what actually mattered most. And that's the call for us today. John has a vision and he tells the early church, 
Don't take your allegiance off. Don't trade your jersey in. Pay attention to what matters most. We actually know the final score, and we must live our present reality in light of the the future realities that are going to come that we know about. And by the way, we got to live our present realities today in light of the present realities that are taking place that we don't know about. That God is using all things for his glory. And the book of Revelation is an incredible book that helps us be grounded in truth of the future as well as the present. Amen? I don't know about you, but how many of you guys need to be more grounded in truth and less grounded in the 49ers? That's who I am. That's who we are. So please hear me. When things get bad, and again, the context of John as he writes this letter to, to this first century church is really, really bad. And as things get bad at the end of the first quarter and the second and the third, we must remember, and this happened with the Niners recently, that the only score that matters is the last score. That we must be grounded in that truth. We must also be grounded in the reality that there are nothing, there is nothing taking place right now that God has not sovereignly allowed and planned for his glory and for our good. And so this vision that John gets that he gives to that church So those seven churches that we're going to look at today helps them not give up. It helps them not secede. It helps them not run away and take their jerseys off and just quit. Because please hear me, as a Bay Area sports fan, have we ever wanted to quit? Yes. But as Christ followers in the kingdom of God, church, please hear me. We must know to be faithful because he is faithful. Now, what helps us be faithful? Here's my summary statement for today. What helps us be faithful in the midst of bad first quarters and second and third? He wins, he's winning, and he's won. Somebody just say amen. Amen. We could be done right now. The problem is we don't believe it fully. How do we know we don't believe it? By our emotions and the roller coasters that we go on. But he's wins, he's winning, he's won no matter how you say it. In every tense it is true. And it should have and it does have, I believe, an internal impact on you. And John will begin his unveiling. That's what the word revelation means. This unveiling of Jesus by reminding the believer that Jesus sits on his throne. Not just the throne of your heart. The throne of the cosmos. That he sits on the throne and blessed are those who see and receive and trust and obey. And when we see the unseen realities of the future, it grounds our present reality in the truth that Jesus is the great I am, that he is coming, that he is coming quickly, and we know the final score. Are we ready for this? This is the gospel. This is how the book ends. And we must know because it changes the way that we live today. So is anyone else fired up for this new series? Is anyone willing to admit that they might be too fired up for this new series? I love it, right? I love the people that are nudging their spouses. You're not going to raise your hand, but someone else will. My hope is your pastor has always simply been this, that you would know the word of God, that you would be happier tomorrow than you are today. This is the only book where God promises blessing for those of us that read it. This is the only book that, again, God just says. Now, again, every book blesses us. Every book draws us to the cross. Every book shows us of the glory of God. And as a pastor that wants to be happier tomorrow than you are today, this is a letter that's full of motivation. It's full of motivation written to a suffering world that's full of political chaos, persecution, It's a letter of motivation that calls the persecuted church to stay faithful and witness to the one who is worthy to sit on the throne. These are some of the key themes we're going to see repeated over and over and over again. Repentance, perseverance, obedience, witness, worship. This book causes us to worship. Some of the best worship songs that we sing as a church and as a community of faith from the beginning until the end are rooted in revelation. They're rooted in knowing the final score. They're rooted in God's sovereignty These themes will come up over and over and over again unless you have to take pictures of every PowerPoint slide. They'll be online tomorrow too. 
But these themes are gonna come up over and over and over again. And so for that reason, I am excited. And yet if I could just be really honest with you because I have no other way to communicate with you. I've avoided this book for 20 years. I'm coming up, I'll finish my 20th year in pastoral ministry, 2002. I've avoided this book personally. I've avoided this book like the plague corporately. There are plagues in the book if you've not read it yet. I've avoided this book in spite of everything I've just told you, in spite of your joy and my joy, I have avoided this book. And if I want you happier tomorrow than you are today, and this book promises blessing and happiness, am I a jerk as a pastor? It's a great question to ask. It's a great thing for us to ponder. Why would I have avoided this book for so long? I'm so glad you asked. Because here's four revelation realities that we must deal with as a family before we get started. Here's the first one. My fear in the Church of America primarily, because that's where I live. I, I travel overseas sometimes, but primarily the Church of America, I'm terrified, and the reality is this. I think we've had a mission mix-up really probably since the 50s, maybe before. I just don't go back that far. This mission mix-up, because Jesus gave us one call in the church. Anybody remember Matthew chapter 28? What was the one call he told the church to do? Go make what? disciples. And yet way too often I see disciples fighting about their theology and not actually living as missionaries, not actually living as disciple makers. And so on many levels, I've avoided this book because I'm like, hey guys, we're not even making disciples. Why are we fighting about when he comes back for his disciples? Let's do what the mission of God is. It was Jesus' mission and he calls it to be our mission. Second reason I've avoided this book is because most Often than not, in my experience, I've seen this bring division in churches. In fa- I know people that don't talk to each other because of their views on Revelation. Church, that's wrong. That's not the kingdom of God. In fact, Jesus says in the kingdom of God, the outside world, which he loves dearly and came to die for, the outside world will know you are his disciples by the way that you what? Love one another. Not by your theology, but by the fact that he sits on your throne and the throne of the cosmos. And so I've got a mission mix-up that I'm concerned about. I've got a division in Revelation that I've seen played out in my life. I have a truckload of eisegesis that I've seen. Eisegesis means that you read something into the text instead of letting the text speak for itself. Instead of going back to, to the beginning when the letter was written and why did John write this and what is John doing, we try to think that it's written to us. The book was not written to you. It can be for you and applied to you, but it was not written to you. And so way too often, because we've got these divisions and we've got these fights that we wanna win, church, we have one fight that we wanna win, right? Lost people meeting Jesus. That's the fight. And so what happens is we, we get this division and that leads to bad eisegesis. And as a guy that used to teach exegesis, it just makes me sad. Very, very sad. Which leads to number four. I don't like being sad. Does anyone else like being sad? Now we're gonna talk about being sad today. Sad's an appropriate emotion. We shouldn't ignore it. It's a real emotion. We should talk about it. We will today. But personally, I'm just not sure my heart can handle more division, more hatred, us not making disciples, and us not living out the gospel of love. I have pastor friends that are dear to me. Two of my pastors, both of them on some level have said, you're crazy. What's wrong with you? Do you like being in pain? I'm like, I don't know. Here's what I do know. God calls us to be faithful. God gave me a call as a pastor, which was not to build his church. Who builds his church? Jesus builds his church. The call to Peter and to other pastors is to what? To feed the sheep. And so that's my call. And so about two years ago, God started stirring in my heart and said, you're supposed to teach Revelation. And I'm like, no, I'm not. <laughs> Sounds just like it was when he called me to plant a church. 
Nope, you must be talking about somebody else. I'll never say never because that guarantees it. But I was very direct with the spirit. Nope, that must be another vintage grace. And there is one somewhere else. I don't know where they are. But I'm like, you must have gotten mixed up. But when God says something, what's our job as his followers? To what? To follow. So for two years, I've prayed, I've watched, I've stepped. For the last six months, we've studied more intensively as a teaching team and as a staff. And so, so I am excited for this, but, but I want us to deal with our vintage revelation realities before we open the book. Now, part of why I'm hopeful is we just got done with five weeks on disciple making. I'd like to think it's actually like almost eight years on disciple making, amen? Like that's our focus as a church, to be disciples that make disciples, that our number one calling as individuals is that we are sons and daughters of God, that's it. We just sang that song, we're disciples who make disciples. Number two, we, we were talking all last year about let's not lose the ethic of love. Let's lean into that. One of my goals for Revelation is not that we all agree on everything, it's that we do a really good job at not agreeing. I actually think that's part of the core that we've been missing this last couple of years as a big C in America. It's not that everyone agrees with me, it's that we know how to disagree and how to major on the majors and minor on the minors. I also think for the last eight years, we've been trying to practice good exegesis. Their town, author's intent, God is working. He's the one speaking. We actually don't really care what Drew says. What does John say? How do we get to that, in that context, to those seven churches, and then how does it apply to us? And then finally, personally, I do want you to be blessed. And so at the end of the day, Two years, I think this is where God's leading us for the next five months. But I wanna have these ground rules first. I wanna make sure that we're ready for this because if we're not ready for this, I have Jonah prepared and we can jump into that if you'd rather, no pun intended. <laughs> the best part is some of you are wondering like, would he really pivot? Yes, absolutely. So that, that's my commitment to you. I'm gonna commit to author's intent, logic and flow, their town, Appropriate application to ours. I'm gonna commit not to fight with you. We are going to disagree. I've read so many commentaries on so many issues. You can't even find that many that agree. And we're gonna come back to what matters most. Jesus wins, he's already won, and he's winning, amen? amen. We're gonna continue to preach. That's what we've preached every Sunday. So are you willing to be with me? Because here's my ask for that to happen. I need you to have some sort of divine amnesia. One guy on our teaching team, Ryan, he threw out that phrase. I was like, I like that. We need divine amnesia to say whatever it is that we read before, on some level, we're gonna come with an open hand, an open heart and say, hey God, will you speak to us? So church, can we commit to divine amnesia? This is audience participation point. If I don't get a majority, I'm, pre I'm pivoting. So again, I am excited. I am thankful for where God is taking us. I'm thankful that he is king and we will faithfully follow him. Now we're gonna use a lot of references and resources we go. Daryl Johnson will be one of those. Dennis Johnson, just D Johnson, that's one of those. But this is a book that we've been reading as a teaching team called Discipleship on the Edge. Why have been reading it? Because it's about discipleship. It's an expository journey through Revelation, which we'll take for the next five months. But that's what it is about. It's about us faithfully following him. So let's pray for that purpose. Father God, would you speak to us? As we read your word right now, would you open our hearts and our heads and our minds and, and our hands to just receive what you have for us? Would we be quick to listen and slow to speak? And spirit, would you lead us? reminding us of who we are in you and leading us forward for the sake of your glory, your kingdom, and those who don't yet know you, may they be invited into the final score because it changes everything. And everybody said, amen. Here's the text for us today. Revelation chapter one, verse one. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that he must soon take place. 
He made it known by sending his angel to the servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, the author to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and he's made us a kingdom priest to his God and father in him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him and even those who pierced him and all tribes on earth will wail and account on him. Even so, amen. Let it be, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's start with the prologue. That's verses one through three. In verses one through three, John already gives us a ton of ideas to unpack. It's a very standard start to a letter. Here's some of the ideas. There's an urgency, there's blessing, there's obedience, there's testimony, and there's revelation. Those are five sermons all by themselves, and yet John just kind of drops them in his prologue. Here's how he starts. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants, Jesus' servants, the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God, to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Now remember, big idea, be faithful. Big idea, God wins, be faithful because you know the final score. So let's read it with that context and that understanding. The word revelation, you see it's, it's multiple times coming down. The father gives it to Jesus. Jesus gives it to John, but how does he give it to John? He gives it through an angel and through a vision. And then John is supposed to give it to who? To those who are reading. The seven churches we're gonna see in just a moment. So that's the process here. What is it? It is the revelation of Jesus by Jesus. Now the word revelation, you've heard before, it's apocalypse. Right, that, that's what we think of. We think of apocalyptic literature. One of the hard parts about this letter is it's three different genres. We have a hard time doing one genre well. Here's the first type of genre. It's the apocalypsis, the unveiling or uncovering. He's showing us what's currently taking place that we don't fully understand, and he's showing us what's going to take place in the future that we don't fully understand. That's what John is doing. Why? Because he's just telling him what Jesus told him to do. It's to have this healthy perspective in the midst of their current context. Daryl says it this way, things are not as they appear. That's a good thing to remember. Whatever the circumstances are, things are not as they appear. We don't understand the full story, and so we'd be wise to hold on to that. And yet, God in his infinite wisdom closes his book this way, showing us things that we don't yet understand showing us present realities and future realities. It's the unveiling, the uncovering. There's aha moments for the early church that they go, oh, I can be faithful because God wins. I can be faithful because God is winning. I can be faithful because God already won. We don't have to stress. We know the final score. And so that's what he says when he says apocalypsis. It's this unveiling or uncovering. Now, how does he do it? He does it by seeing things. He does it through visions. He shows up, and we're gonna see that over and over again. In fact, some words I want you to kind of circle and pay attention to is what does John see, and then what does John hear? 40 times we see that word, I saw. Here's the first one. 32 times we see the word, I hear. Sometimes John sees things, but hears something different. Why does that happen? I love the way Eugene Peterson says it. Eugene Peterson says, there's really nothing new informationally in Revelation. 
Theologically, we actually have all of this in other books of the Bible, theologically speaking. So it's not new information, but it's a renewed imagination. Here's the reality. Why does he speak in so much imagery? He wants us to feel this text. He wants us to understand that we might have to feel physical beatings, and so we want to feel that it's worth it. We want to feel that whatever it is, the circumstances that are around us, that the kingdom of God is moving forward, that God has not abandoned us because there are moments in their life particularly where they're like, where is God now? Where is God in the midst of this chaos? Do you see the score at halftime? And it would be easy to secede. It'd be easy to run away. And so that's why the revelation comes. This is the revelation, the unveiling, the uncovering, that things are not as they appear, this imagery for the purpose of emotion. Now, before we get too far, I think we're going to see a ton of numbers in Revelation. So it's going to be important for us to just pause for a moment and say, what's happening with all of the numerology? The numerology matters. Remember, it's supporting the big idea. That's what it's doing. Numerology, we're gonna see numbers, and we'll talk about them as they come up. This is just week one, a broad overview, but we'll see the number three a lot. Three is a holy number. It's a number of completeness. We'll see the number seven a lot. It's perfection. It's that God created in these seven days. It's another holy number. We'll see the number 10, which means fullness. We'll see the number 666. There's other numbers in the book. I just know you know that one, right? 666 is one less than perfection three times over. That's the number 666. We're gonna see John regularly use not just numbers to actually be telling a bigger story of the big ideas, but also we're gonna see batches, like we're gonna see seven judgments. Perfect judgment. Deserved judgment. It's gonna mess us up in America because we fight for what we deserve. What do we all deserve, church? Perfect judgment. That's why our church is called grace. It's what we need. It's what we get, undeserved favor. We're gonna see seven times, he says, every tongue and tribe and nation that there's this perfect kingdom that is coming. Seven times the Lord God Almighty. Seven times that he sits on the throne. Seven times we see the word Christ. Seven times two, we see the word Jesus. Seven times four, we see the word lamb. I think that's important. You'll actually see lamb in a lot of our literature. Because again, he's gonna hear about the lion and he's gonna see what? Anybody know? The lamb. He's gonna see the lamb of God. Because Jesus wins, just not how we typically think. But he actually wins. And so that's what we're going to see. But the big idea, of course, is that this is a revelation of Jesus by Jesus, that he is the ultimate authority, that he's given this revelation to his servant. The word servant would actually communicate allegiance. The, The doulos term of slave and of servant would say, no, 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 we're in it. I know the Niners lost last week, but I'm a Niner fan. Well, that's dumb. It's okay. God wins. I wish my vision was real. But this is what we're calling people to. This reality that we don't see apart from that. John goes on in this prologue and he says it this way. This all must take place soon. That word must, is, we're going to see it in just a moment. It's a prophetic phrase. I think it's a timing that says it's imminent. We must live our life in such a way knowing that Jesus is coming back. Everyone's going to ask me, so I'll just get out of the way. Do I think that we're living in the end times? Yes, I think that started when Jesus died and rose again. Do I think that he's coming back? Yes. Do I know when? No. I don't, but I know that he is, and he calls us to be faithful until he does, and that's the point of this letter. And so he's just simply saying, this is all going to take place soon. This phrase we're gonna see bookends the book. It's not just in chapter one, verse one, but it's also in chapter four, and then again in chapter 22, verse six. This week, you're gonna wanna read chapter one and 22 almost side by side. It's gonna help you see these bookends of God's faithfulness and of his victory. 
That's what we're going to see as we continue on in Revelation. Verse 3, then, he continues that idea that the time is near. It's this prophetic language. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So there's your second genre. It's apocalyptic. It's also prophetic. Now, prophets were mouthpieces for the Lord. In fact, sometimes prophets weren't even actually coming in to communicate the future. In fact, if you really read Old Testament prophets, which, by the way, as we study Revelation, you're going to be Old Testament a lot. We're not reading the last book. We're reading the whole first half of the book. We're going to see that over and over again. The prophets would come in, and they didn't even always know all the details of what they were saying. But what did the prophets do? They weren't just predicting the future. More often than not, they were calling you to, in the present, be faithful. That's what they were calling. They were calling the righteous remnant to return to their God, Yahweh. That's what the prophet's role was, to be a mouthpiece of God, to say return. And if you don't repent in return, then there's going to be righteous judgment. And so John in that way is a prophet. He's coming as a mouthpiece of God, speaking prophetically. And here's what we see. We are blessed when we read the words aloud of this prophecy. So one of our values as a church is we want the word of God to guide our teaching. And so how did they read? Well, when they had their church gatherings, they would read letters. That's what they would do. They'd read them out loud. Most people didn't know how to read. And so someone would read the letter out loud and their imagination would fire off. Oh man, this is what God's doing. Here's what it's gonna look like. This is the emotion that God wants me to have as I see this take place. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who don't just hear it, but what else? Keep it. That's always one of the hard words, isn't it? I like watching a good movie, but are we gonna do something about it? Why? Because talk is cheap. Because life is short and hell is hot and it's worth it. And so are we going to hear it or are we going to actually keep what is written in it for the time is what? Near. That word blessing shows up a bunch in the last part of the book, Revelation 22, 7, 10, 18, and 19. The prophet's role then was to come in and on some level to comfort the afflicted. Guys, it's just halftime. Guys, hold on. It's worth it. Don't trade in your jersey now. You're going to miss the glory that's going to come. But it was also to afflict the comfortable. Guys, those of you, because there were plenty of Christians that kind of had already started to sell out. They already started to turn their jerseys in and join Babylon and Persia before to join Rome specifically to just kind of have a faith that was good for them on Sundays, but not actually lordship of their life. They were giving up. And so he's calling them to be faithful, to recognize this, to recognize those of you who are not walking with Jesus, that there is a comfort that is coming for those of us who are, and it's going to be way more important than whatever comfort you have right now. So that's John's role as prophet as the time is near. And we see this in the Old Testament and the New Testament and even now. Verses four through five then is this customarily written letter where there's an author, an audience, and a greeting. Now again, we can't cover it all today. We'll have these conversations in our life group. Next week, we'll pull apart the author more. John tells a little more about himself. What I love about John as we get to know him a little bit is that John is with the people. John is a learner alongside them. That's very much how I feel as a pastor that I'm in this journey with you, that I've avoided this book, and now I'm saying, wait a second, this is in the canon for a reason, church. We should know what it says. It's gonna bless us. It's gonna change our lives sincerely. So let's do that together. But I love that John's with them. Does anyone know where John's writing? It doesn't come till verse nine. That's next week. But he's writing from Patmos. Why? Because he's persecuted for his faith. He's with them. They're in this journey together. And so John is writing specifically to seven churches. Now we know just from our little brief comment about numerology that the numbers matter, that they're actually symbols, not statistics. So we've got to recognize that, that over and over again, we're going to see these numbers throughout the Bible, that these are symbols that are drawing us to big ideas. So again, this is for all of the church, but specifically for these seven churches. 
that have seven real issues, and we're going to walk through them one at a time, starting in just a couple of weeks. John is writing to them. This is modern-day Turkey, who are in Asia. That's his author, and that's the audience. Specifically, what does he greet them? Well, this is the occasion of the letter. Those that are in Asia, grace and peace. Why do they need grace and peace? Because it's halftime, and it doesn't look good. I love the way Johnson says, and I'm just going to flip for a moment and read you from page 23. He says this, persecution in the Roman Empire had already begun in AD 65 under Emperor Nero, and it intensified in AD 67 under Emperor Vespian. Now, Jerusalem was destroyed then in AD 70. Peter and Paul have been crucified. Timothy has been murdered. But in AD 92, things got worse. There's a new emperor in town. He was profoundly insecure man, as most tyrants are. And to compensate for his insecurity, he ordered all the citizens and the subjects of the Roman Empire to worship him as Lord and God, Dominius Adeus. He changed the name of the Roman Empire to the Eternal Empire. He called himself Everlasting King. And all the citizens and subjects were to go to a temple built in his honor as king, take a pinch of incense, throw it on the fire of the altar, and say, Caesar Curios, Caesar is Lord. He did not care what other people believed as long as they did this act of worship. It was such a little thing, an act of worship, which was the glue that held most of his empire together. That's idolatry. This is what the early Christians were being called to, being called to, to cast idolatry, cast value and worship to anyone other than the Lord. And we see that John's on Patmos because he doesn't do that. We see in chapter 2, verse 13, we see someone recently just get killed in one of these seven churches because people weren't doing that. And so John is writing this book to this broken, fractured church in tribulation and persecution and saying, don't give up. I know things are hard, but it's worth it. Don't give up. Grace and peace. We hear the word grace and peace and we go, oh yeah, that's what Paul does. That's what John does. That's how we start letters. Guys, this is a peace that they did not have that could only come not of this world. This world was not gonna offer it. They had to choose, am I being allegiant to Jesus? Am I keeping my jersey on? Or am I just gonna take it off just for a couple of moments? No one's gonna know. It's not gonna be that big of a deal. No, it was a huge deal. It cost them their life. It ruined their families. It cost them land that they used to own. It cost them all sorts of things. And on some level, we can't relate, and yet we also can read and we can remember. This is happening in other parts of the world even now. And so this church is persecuted, and Jesus offers them through this vision to John grace and peace. Now, now how do we get this grace and peace? Well, it comes from him who is, who was, and who is to come. This is a direct attack towards even the Roman Empire and the way in which they called themselves God's. The way that these Caesars would say, I am Lord. No, only Jesus and the Father and the Spirit, the Trinity three in one, is him who is, who was, and is in could come. And from the seven spirits who are before the throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. So I think on some level, we may have a reference to the Trinity here. Now, I love this. You read different commentators. Half of them think that the seven spirits are the Trinity, or the Holy Spirit. Half of them don't. Guess what I think? I don't know. I don't know. I think it makes sense that it could be the Trinity. It could also just be regular. We see in the Old Testament that we see God followed by an entourage of angels. So it could be either one. You'll get used to me saying, I don't know, because guess what? That's pretty normal. I don't think we need to know, but I don't know in this context. One thing that I do think could help us as we read and as we study is in the context, if you want, go read Isaiah 11, 2, Zechariah 4, 1 through 6 and 10. Go read Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, where grace and peace from the Father and the Son and the Spirit 3 and 1 is this allusion back to the Old Testament. See, when John wrote this, 
when John wrote this, all of these early Testament believers would have gone back to those verses instantly. We got a lot of work to do, church. On one level, you're pumped to be here. On another level, are you writing down all your homework? There's a lot of work we got to do here. And go back and understand, but where is the authority to be faithful coming from? Where is the victory coming from? I believe it comes from the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, three in one. That he is the beginning and the end that he is the one leading all things. And then he zooms in here even further on who is this Jesus. We're gonna talk a lot more about Jesus next week. And so who is this Jesus? We're gonna spend a lot of time. He is king, he is Lord. It's in direct contrast with the Roman Empire wanted them to believe. He gives us three titles. Why? Because that's a complete reference. Three titles to who is Jesus. He is the faithful witness. Now we've talked about this a lot, even in our John series of the gospel. The word witness is also readily translated as what? Anybody remember? Martyred. So he is the faithful martyr. He's the the first one that came. He's faithful to the mission of the Father. The Father came because he loved the world and he sent his Son. And so Jesus comes to be faithful to the Father as a witness of the glory of God, as an invitation to the good life. But this is huge. When Jesus comes, he says, I'm the faithful witness. The faithful witness comes actually to be the first martyr. He's also the firstborn of the dead. Does anyone else feel like that's an oxymoron, right? the firstborn of the dead. Why? Because when we're faithful witnesses, especially in their context, what's an imminent reality as they faithfully follow Jesus, where are they following him? To the cross. That's what he came. Guys, as we studied the good life for these last two years, did we ever say the good life was the easy life? No, we literally said the opposite, but what we said is it's worth it. So Jesus comes as a faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. He's the conquering lamb who lays down his life. That's who he is. We're going to see that over and over and over again in this study. The third title then is this. As we faithfully follow Jesus, guess what? We too may die, but in Christ we do not. Why? Because he is the ruler of the kings of earth. Because death for the believer is but a gateway to glory. Because Jesus reigns over all the emperors that want you to believe that they're God, Jesus actually reigns. He is terrifyingly and powerfully good. Amen? terrifyingly and powerfully good. And yet we're gonna see next week in chapter one, verse 17, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid because he is with you and he is for you because he wins in spite of what the circumstances look like in verse 18. But how he wins, verse five, is by the blood of the lamb. The ruler, the kings of the earth, are gonna try to call you to allegiance, but they don't have true power and authority, John tells us. We must resist their call for allegiance and keep our jerseys on. That's what we see here in the text. We must resist that call. We must recognize the vision that I wish I would have had, which is, hey, we don't need Jimmy G. We didn't need Colin Kaepernick. We didn't need anyone before us because we got Trey Lance. Now, I promise you, I was gonna stay in their town and on our town, and now we're drifting into heresy. So I'm gonna repent and get back to what matters most, which is the text. Why? We don't need heroes. Nope, that's not me. So I don't know what happened there. We don't need heroes. We have a hero. His name is Jesus. We need clickers, but we don't need heroes. I got nothing. We'll just keep reading the Bible. That's what matters. Verse five, here we go. The main character. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom of priests. That's who Jesus is, those three things. He loves us. Somebody say Amen. He loves us and he frees from our sins. We don't see the word sin a lot in the text. Chapter 18, it'll come up again. But he loves us and he frees us from our sin. There it is. Chapter 18, verses four through five. And how will he do that? By the blood of the lamb. And he's made us a kingdom. Now, again, I wanna read this verse for you. It goes back to Exodus 19. I told you guys, keep going back, right? 
Daniel, Exodus, Zechariah. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, again, don't just hear my word, keep it, you will be my treasured possession among all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. As he speaks through Moses, he says, there's gonna be a new kingdom that I'm gonna establish. We already have a hero. We already have a king. His name is Jesus, and he's gonna gather people from every tongue and tribe and nation, and he's gonna call us. Now, I love this. This language that we're reading right here, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by the blood of the lamb, and he made us this kingdom. He made us these priests. They're gonna go and tell people the story of Jesus. Guys, I know life is hard, but Jesus is coming and he wins. I know life is difficult. Guys, I love telling that story because everyone I know wants to be happier tomorrow than they are today, everybody. And so church, that's our call as priests. To his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever and amen. This is the doxology of Revelation. It's not the end, it's just the beginning. When Jason leads us in worship as our worship pastor, maybe you've heard him say, he says, sing. Have you ever heard him say that? He's singing a song, and I can't bounce like Jason, but I don't know how he bounces. And he'll say things like, sing. You know what he's saying? To him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. And everybody said, sing. That's what we see. Whenever we look at Jesus, you know what happens in our heart? We get emotional because we were dead in our sin, but he makes us alive, and that makes us what, church? Happy. Makes us happy. And we celebrate and we proclaim his glory. We sing it from the top of our lungs and from every rooftop. And we say, I know it might cost me my life, but man, to him be the glory. To him be the glory forever and ever, amen. He goes on and he says, behold, he is coming. This is the first of 26 callbacks to Daniel. Just memorize the book, you'll be ready. First of 26, behold, he's coming back on clouds with every eye will see him. Those who pierced him, I think it's easy for us to jump to, to the New Testament when Jesus died and the Roman soldiers pierced him. I think that's actually a reference all the way back to Zechariah 12. Again, he's saying Jesus came for those who loved Yahweh and those who hated Yahweh and everybody in between. In fact, here's the truth of the matter. As Jesus comes down on clouds in the second coming that Daniel refers to, and Zechariah says it's for every tribe and tongue and nation on earth, they will all wail on account of him. Why? Because either A, he's their savior and they're heartbroken that he's paying their sins, or B, they've recognized now in this moment they finally see that they missed the good life, which was not rejecting Jesus but following him. See, wailing is a reality. The gospel is only good news for those who hear and do. Otherwise, the gospel is what separates us, what brings us, but it's our sin that separates us and the gospel reveals that even so, amen. Amen just means let it be. It means I agree. It means yes, go preacher, I'm not asleep, but what it means is let it be. I agree. And so John, as he's writing, he says, there's gonna come this day. He's gonna come back on the cloud of heaven. We're gonna see that day later. I pray we physically get to, we're gonna see the description, the imagery of that. And then the last word comes from God in verse eight, the father. Here's what the father says. I am, we know the great I am. It's the first of four references that we're gonna see. John in the gospel wrote a lot about the great I am, seven of those. I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, says the Lord, who is, who was, and who is to come. I am the almighty. I'm the only one worthy of wearing my jersey. That's it. Every other jersey, like my buddy just said, is this the jersey for Loser Sunday? I'm like, yep, absolutely. I don't have a Team Jesus jersey. But that's what Jesus is calling us to. And he's calling these first seven churches to be faithful because he is faithful. Now, tons of implications. Have I talked too fast? I'm sorry. Kind of. We're still behind. We got so much and I'm so excited. 
So excited for what God's teaching us. But here's the big idea. God wins. He already won. He is winning even when we can't see it. Church, can I encourage you? Don't go through this study alone. Join a life group. David and Will, our groups guys, they live in the next steps room. They live on the patio. Go find someone that lives in your neighborhood that you can read and process the text with. Go pick up a copy of of Daryl Johnson's Discipleship on the Edge if you want. There's a ton of great resources. I'll post more online. This is just one of the many that we've been reading. A great way to dive into the text right now is to just read the whole letter by yourself. You might wanna watch the Gospel Project first. Those are great videos. I've watched them like 50 times. They're great videos. They're helping us see the big picture of the whole letter. Remember, you got three genres, apocalyptic prophecy, and it's a letter that John writes to churches that he knows that he's with. He's a pastor in this context. But take time this week, and here's your first homework. Read the whole book, watch the video, pick up a book, join a group. Don't do this alone. But don't join a group if you're gonna fight with people. Knock it off, we don't have time for that. Seriously, make disciples that make disciples. Here's the first implication for us today. This is a book of motivation, of hope, of faithfulness, and of endurance. I love this. The word hope's gonna appear seven times in the book. Weird. Hope for a future. In the original context, they were desperate and dependent. They needed hope that Caesar was not king, but they need to be reminded that Jesus was because God won. And you can now stand. The other word is faithfulness, 10 times, complete, full. 10 times we see this word faithfulness. Endurance is 14 times, mostly in these first three chapters. You can be faithful to wear your jersey. You can wear a jersey, a Niners jersey next week too if you want. It really is Jersey Sunday next week. I'm just trying to be a trendsetter. Be faithful, have hope, and endure. Does anyone need more of that in their life? Oh man, I need more of that. Let's pursue that together, which means we're pursuing Jesus and who he is. Three big implications we're gonna see throughout the book, starting in chapter 12, is we must be on guard for the serpent. There's gonna be moments in our life where we feel like that there's bad news. There's no bad news in the kingdom. That's why we got this letter to remind us that there's no bad news. In chapter 12, we're gonna see the first Christmas. One of the difficult things of reading this letter is it's, it's not chronological. Chapter 12 already happened. It's the very first Christmas. That should be our new Christmas Eve sermon the dragon and the woman and the baby. Like, who's coming to that Christmas Eve? That's chapter 12. Church, be on guard. The dragon can't catch us off guard. We know the future. We know the serpent in the garden. We know the dragon. We know Satan. We know that he's seeking to kill and destroy and divide and devour. DQ, there you go. But God wins. Be on guard as we pursue chapter 12. Be on guard as we pursue chapter 13. Everyone gets really excited to talk about the Antichrist. I don't know why he loses. Be on guard for the beast. Be on guard for the political powers that, that are, again, they were present in Rome in that day. They were present in Babylon before and Persia in between. And every empire after, every empire is promising that they will give you the good life. Only Jesus gives us the good life. Amen. That's it. Everything else is a fake, a substitute, over-promising and under-delivering. And yet here's the reality when we think about Satan as the dragon and the Antichrist as beasts and as political powers is is don't miss this. Is that on some level, God gave us government as common grace. That's what Romans 13 tells us. Tells us in 1 Timothy chapter two to pray for our leaders. Don't start to say, well, everyone is from the devil. No, everyone actually is fallen. That's who everyone is. But God is faithful and just to redeem those. 
But beware of the beast, beware of political powers that want your full allegiance. Only one person deserves that, and his name is Jesus, amen? So beware of that as we step into this book. That's in chapter 13. In chapter 17, finally, recognize that the harlot will seek to seduce. That's what she'll do. She'll call you to follow her. She'll be like, look at all these things I'm gonna give you. Does it not sound like what Satan said to Jesus, right, in, in the wilderness? Look at all these things that you can have and what was Jesus' call to be faithful to the Father and he calls us to do the same. To faithfully father, to, to faithfully follow, to resist the dragon, to resist the beast, to resist the harlot, to believe what we've always said we believe as a church, that there's more joy in Jesus than anything in anyone else this world has to offer. Can we learn through Revelation that history has a way of repeating itself? There's patterns. There's patterns to political powers. There's patterns to Satan. There's patterns to seduction. And it's all the same. It's what do we put on the throne of our heart? My prayer is only Jesus. There's this pattern of history, but there's also this pattern of God that he's faithful and just to forgive, to redeem, to call. But the day is coming when he will say, enough is enough. Here is the final deserved judgment because I am holy. And for those of us who know Jesus, that's a good day, amen? Until that day, we got a lot of proclaiming to do. We got a lot of inviting to do, not not to church, but to Jesus. We got a lot of stories to tell of God's grace, of how the harlot doesn't actually fall through, about the beast doesn't actually conquer, that Satan doesn't actually win, that he lost in the first garden and he loses in the second garden. He won't be a part of the third garden in the new heaven and the new earth. And that day is coming. And until that day, we must remember that he wins, that he's already won and that he's winning right now. Thank you for joining us for our Revelation series. As you go this week, be comforted by the knowledge that God is in control and he desires nothing more than for you to find full and complete joy in him. See you next week.